Hello and welcome to episode three of Back to Britpop. It's Chris and today I'm talking to Jake Schillingford from My Life Story. The first My Life Story single came out in 1993 with Girl A, Girl B, Boy C. But Jake talks a lot about the forming of the band, the early club scene that he was heavily involved with, the Britpop years, and then subsequently, you know, releasing albums and touring ever since. And really, My Life Story have never stopped writing songs. So it's a really good chat. And uh, I'll see you on the other side again for some more social media gubbins. Enjoy the interview. So welcome to the podcast, Jake. I hope you're feeling well in these difficult times. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, all my close friends and family are all healthy and uh, and uh, very much looking forward to chatting to you about past glories and uh, the days that we could walk around and cuddle each other uh, unencumbered. <laughs> the golden era of, of human contact. <laughs> Let's talk about my life story and how it all began in a way. Growing up in your house, what was the sort of music that was playing in the kitchen? Well, both my parents were really into jazz, but my, my father was very much into jazz and uh, uh, my uncle was um, a, a quite a successful jazz uh, saxophonist. And both my both my father and my uncle Jim um, played with people like Charlie Watts from the Stones, who, who obviously famously uh, played in a lot of jazz bands and stuff like that. So there was that side. Um, but um, it was my mother really who uh, who really got me into music, and she would play everything from. Uh, it certainly wasn't music in the kitchen, uh, but it, it was uh, my, my father had made a, a, a record player uh, from a, like a magazine. You could buy a magazine and it's like, make your own record player. So he made one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, on my dad's homemade record player, my mother would play um, all the Beatles albums apart from the White Album, which right. is great because I had the White Album to look forward to once I left home and then went out and bought it. So that was a weird one. Um, uh, and then quite a lot of um, singer-songwriters of that of the era that I was growing up in. So, Carol King, um, James Taylor, Cat Stevens, um, just brilliantly crafted, emotional, organic music. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, almost the complete opposite. The first record that I ever owned uh, was uh, Blockbuster by The Sweet, and and that was bought for me by my mum. Um, so a lot of the glam stuff started to come through. Uh, that I was introduced to through her, and yeah, so that was the sort of the bedrock of everything. But the the the, the crucial the crucial element for me growing up was that um, I, uh, I I I was actually brought up by a lot of babysitters because both my parents worked at the uh, the art college in Southend, and uh, they would ask lots of babysitters to come and and look after me when they went out, and um, uh, this was about nineteen everything every from about 1974 to 1977 so um i was i was exposed very early and at a very young age to punk rock all the babysitters that looked after me were punks um (laughs) and they all brought uh their records in to play while they looked after me so uh yeah i was uh yeah i i I had a very very early uh education in that so when did you think the penny drops with you when you thought to yourself i might be able to pen a tune here well, uh, probably quite early. Um, ashamedly, I, I I had a band uh, before I could even play an instrument, which might sound really strange to some people, but I formed a band with my brother on drums on cardboard boxes that are <laughs> on top of a table. Uh, I played um, I played a baseball bat, uh, which was called a Louisville Slugger, which we got from, uh, not New York, uh, oh, um, New England, uh, where I went on holiday. 
so that was 1979, my first band, uh, and we were called uh, we were called the Jump Boys, which was named after the, an undertone song. And yeah, I, I mind. I was I was totally. I was into the idea of being in a band more than being a musician. And I actually still think I'm like that now. And so I had the logos. I was, I was getting into the fashion side of it, uh, the movements. I was just, the whole thing, I just created an imaginary world around a band. And then, I, then, then a little bit later, when I was about 16, I thought I'd better start learning how to play an instrument. What, what instrument came first for you? Uh, guitar. And is that where you kind of decided you'd write everything on and, and, and that was your go-to instrument for the writing process. Yeah, but mainly, uh, again, only because my heroes at that time were people like Stuart Adamson from the Skids or, you know, I suppose any, any band that had, um, any band that had a, uh, a front man would usually have a guitar uh, around their neck. So it, it felt, felt to me like um, that was, when, when I was in the Jump Boys, I had my baseball bat as a guitar. It felt like a good prop. So, that's where it came from. I, I bought a, a load of old copies of Sniffing Glue, which was a punk fanzine um, written by Mark Perry. And, um, yeah, yeah. and I read all that stuff about, you know, you only need three chords and the truth and all that sort of stuff. I, I think I remember saying during the Britpop era, which is a, a quote that I was quite pleased with, which is, um, I said something like, you know, we, we, my last three took the three chords, the truth, but we added a minor as well to, you know, elevate <laughs> that, it somewhat. That minor chord is so important. It just <laughs> it has is, so, yeah. much, so much depth that a minor chord. It, it's the difference between punk and new waves, you know, the yeah. new wave bands, you have to play a minor. If we fast forward a little bit then in terms of assembling my life story and like it's early, uh, the early structure of the band. Yeah. How did you, how did you go about that? What did you, in your mind, what did you want? Because obviously the, the sound is unique. And actually, in the early sort of Britpop era, you did stick out as something that was applying two different sort of musical genres and creating something that was a little bit different to what was happening at that time. But what was, was that accidental or was it something you really always wanted from the start? No, it was, it was very deliberate. I mean, the original My Life Story actually was a, was a four-piece band um, of, of, of very good friends that I grew up with back in Southend. We were, we were doing really well, you know, um, local band, you know, often in the local newspaper and, and, and um, you know, we, 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 we were really doing all right. And um, it just, it, just it, it felt like we were just, we, we couldn't really break through to the next level. So mm. um, I, you know, like many, like many uh, musicians from the home counties, obviously Essex, um, where I'm from is suddenly sort of 60 miles away from London. So, no, so I moved to London um, uh, at 19 and, um, and it was from, it was from being exposed to, to, and I, and I actually got a job working for Dingwalls in Camden, um, as a graphic designer designing their flyers and posters. So I was, I was an incredible experience and I was, I was very much at the heart of the music scene and it actually was with the sort of rhythm and blues music scenes. Dingwalls was a, a famous, uh, R and B venue. And of course, coming from South end, uh, obviously we're well known down there for, um, Eddie and the Hot Rods coming from Canvey Island and uh, uh, sorry, Dr. Feelgood coming from Canvey Island and Eddie and the Hot Rods and, and, and a lot of a lot of that uh, R&B bands. Once I sort of started to understand how bands worked a little bit more and I, I went to see gigs every single night and of every single genre, really. And then I started my own club night at Dingwalls on a Monday night called The Panic Station with my friend Simon Benny. Um, and that, that was the best way of learning, really, because 
if you want to be part of the scene, you know, don't join one, start one, really. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, we booked lots of bands at that time, like the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and the Wonder Staff. You know, these were a lot of these bands' first ever London shows. This is, this is in sort of 87, around that era, 88. But the orchestral thing just came because I've always loved the marriage between orchestral music and not necessarily rock, but, but a, a contemporary approach to it. So, um, and it all really starts with a, a love of John Barry. And, yeah. and my entire family are completely obsessed with James Bond. Um, we'd all go out and see James Bond movies, you know, together. And it was a sort of family event. In the 80s, you had the grunge scene and then you had the rave scene. The indie scene at the time was, um, you know, that sort of C86 shambling kind of stuff, which I wasn't a huge fan of. And I, I, I thought it was very um, un, uh, unambitious and, um, mm. and, and, and sort of... Not that I mean, I like I sort of like a lot of lo-fi stuff, but I just I just did it wasn't epic or forward-thinking enough or expansive enough for me. Mm. So the idea for me really was, and obviously you know, no one knew Britpop was coming around the corner or anything. But it, all all I really wanted to do was the complete and utter opposite of yeah. what was going on around me. And and so that started as a manifesto. We literally did have a manifesto. So we had a number of things on um, the list. Um, I think one of them was uh, a door policy. We were very, uh, one of the first bands ever to have a door policy at our gigs, um, which means, you know, we, we would encourage people not to wear jeans and a t-shirt to a My Life Story show, which <laughs> were, I mean, it was tongue in cheek, but yeah, people yeah. did start to take it quite seriously. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Of course, you know, there were bands that were, you know, where there were, you know, there were dogs coming into shows, you know, on the end of strings and things like that. And <laughs> so I've got nothing against those people or anything like that, but I just wanted, it was becoming increasingly more obvious to me that from watching Top of the Pops slowly sort of die, and it felt like it was dying at that time, you know, there was, there's all these faceless dance bands on the television and, you know, and I felt like I had the personality to, to carry something. And I, I just, you know, I wanted to do something that was bombastic and grandiose and, and it, it felt like the time was right, you know, and we were, mm. you know, we would have John Major as, uh, you know, as, as, as prime minister. And that, that felt very dull and gray at the mm. time, uh, obviously echoed on spitting image with his puppet, which was very gray. Yeah. That's alone yeah. that we know that, you know, he was, calling his cabinet bastards and shagging Edwina Curry yeah. far more interesting than <laughs> if I only we knew we've got a lot of respect yeah. for John Major these days <laughs> I do as well yeah. <laughs> he seems he seems very mild and meek and pretty decent uh, looking back in hindsight obviously wonderfully boring those early gigs as my life story were taking shape in the sort of the early form or the proper sort of fully fledged form what were they like or what could you feel from the audience was there something tangible happening you could feel it yeah I think so um I was known uh, in Camden uh, in my early twenties, first and foremost, as the, the the bloke that did flyers for the all the clubs. So I I moved from designing flyers for for Dingwalls exclusively, then to doing flyers for the Cannon Palace, to do flyers for Blow Up. I actually designed the Blow Up logo um, for you know obviously one of Britport's most famous clubs, and so I was doing artwork for everybody. I was going, I w- I was seeing so many gigs that it. it it's probably quite hard that the, the gradations of moving into into what you you call specifically Britpop is is it's much harder for me to to explain yeah. because obviously there was no sort of big wow moment like mm. apparently everybody saw the Ramones at the Roundhouse in nineteen seventy five 
Five before Punk or yeah, all the yeah. people that were at the Pistols concert at Manchester. Including uh, Mick Hucknall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't think Britpop really had that. I mean, what I will say is that, you know, there was definitely in London, you know, I, I can only really speak for the, for the London side of Britpop. A lot of people were getting into sort of maybe moving into, into fashions because grunge was an anti-fashion and because free rave festivals and that sort of dressing down and camping out thing, you know, there was, mm. there was definitely, there definitely felt like, you know, I was, I was bumping into people in thrift shops in Camden and quite a lot. I mean, I, I, one of the very first um, pieces written about me in the Melody Maker was a journalist um, just happened to spot me in Sainsbury's in Camden and I was wearing a boating blazer and had uh, my grandmother's cane that had a duck head on it. And I, and I ended up being in the, I think, I think I got in the, in the, in the Melody Maker just because of that. So yeah, I think there was just, there, there were obviously people around. I, I, I didn't know anybody. I, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't sort of hanging around with these bands. It wasn't until Paul, uh, my good friend Paul, who's also from, uh, Paul Tunkin from Southend, who, who set up Blow Up in Camden and, and then started to meet some of the other bands there, um, that, that I felt, you know, there were some kindred spirits out there. Mm. I, I, I have to be honest, I think probably the clubs probably did, in the very, very early era, um, probably did more than the gigs. I don't think we were going to each other's gigs so much as sort of meeting at the clubs. The Milo Street fan base at that time was was still a mixture of friends, curious people, um, and obviously people I'd met through designing flyers for the clubs and stuff like that. So, you know, something I haven't really given much thought really, but but mm. I think it probably, um, yeah, the, 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 the feeling of, 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 of something burgeoning was, was, for me, was coming out of the clubs in Camden. So when did the signature high kick get developed? Well, I always loved bands uh, that had, you know, little things that they did, little, you know, like I suppose Adam and the Ants or, you know, sort of bands that just had little moves and things that, you know, actually I mentioned Stuart Adamson earlier. He had the famous jump, the scissor kick jump that he did yeah. with his guitar. And I've always loved that sort of, you know, I mean, our, our footballers do it now, don't our footballers? Yeah, 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 yeah. Signature celebration. So, yeah, yeah. I, I always loved that. I love the idea of it, and I, I, I mean, the kick is one of them. But I do have a few moves that I sort of work on. I, I'm one of those people that I, I, I just sort of do things. I do silly things on stage, and then you know, usually a band member will go say, "Well, that was stupid. Don't ever do that again." <laughs> or they'll say, "That was amazing. You must do that again at the next show." And so I sort of collect them, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. like stamps. But um, <laughs> the actual the actual leg kick really does come from the sort of all the heroes of mine. Uh, the sort of next phase of music that I started to really get into, which was a was when I moved to London, which was really sort of getting into David Essex and sort of Anthony Newley and yeah. Pete Proby and and the, the you know looking looking to try and understand what entertainers were like the world of entertainment. I think I, I seem to remember a lot of us having conversations about you know where where have all the pop stars gone? You know, well, what is a pop star? Well, they're an entertainer. Okay, what is a male pop star? Is an yeah male entertainer? What do they do? Well, you know, they're like they're like Tony Newley. They're self-effacing. They're funny. They have quips. They have moves. What I found out that Tony Newley had influenced David Bowie. Um, I started invest- investigating New- Tony Newley. For me, he's the he's the grandfather of my side of Britpop. For me, he was cheeky. You know, he punched above his weight. He married Joan Collins. 
you know, that was that, that's a, you know, that's a well done, mate. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely fantastic work. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't long before my first review. This was in the the NME. My voice was described similar to Tony Newley's. It's a bit of a, obviously I have a bit of a crooner's voice. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and, uh, and then within within a day, I had a phone call from his his uh, his PA saying, Mr. Newley has not seen his name in the New Music Express for over 15 years. <laughs> wow. I'd very much like to meet you. So, uh, so I met Tony Newley very early on. Um, so, and it was lovely to spend some time with him and, and, and watch him perform and, 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 and understand that level of showmanship uh, that he had. Were you always, do you reckon, growing up confident enough to be able to pull the stage frontman thing off? No, not at all, really. I, it, it just sort of, I didn't do any of that stuff. You know, from the, when, I, when I went from playing the baseball bat to playing guitar in, my, in, the, in the band back in South End, I, didn't, I just stood there and played guitar. I was, I was missing pop stars so much that I thought, well, I, you know, I'm not a pop star, but I've got to do something. Somebody, somebody's got to do something somewhere, you know, and I'm, and I'm absolutely sure that people like Jarvis and pretty much everybody else that was, was they were all thinking the same thing. I'm sure they were, you know, mm. it's just, we, we didn't meet up at, you know, the good mixer and chat about it and all go <laughs> off and do it. You know, it wasn't yeah, like yeah, meeting yeah. over, right, yeah, let's yeah. go and change the world. I just think, you know, like, you know, like when inventions come along, they, they tend to all come along at the same time. Like, you know, the sort of atomic bomb could have been invented by another country. It's that sort of, you know, I just think it's just a combination of a lot of factors. And I think also you have to bear in mind our, our age at the time. Um, mm. Obviously, I, you know, I mentioned the Beatles earlier on, but, you know, we were we were of an age where we we were drip fed quite incredible music when we were young so you know Britpop does have a late 60s early 70s feel to it if it's yeah. not if it's not you know the late 60s Beatles and Kink stuff then it's the early 70s glam stuff you know and then you, you you throw all of that in the mix and I think that you know the education of the Britpop movement we would have all been we would have just sucked up all of that music when we were kids um, and it's really fascinating that you asked me those questions early on in the, in the interview, because I actually think that that's really where it begins. You know, I, I mean, I, you know, Louise Wenner is a good friend of mine and, and, and uh, we're both the same age and our reference points are exactly the same. You know, we're both we both you know, we love glam. We all, but we also love new wave because we were buying records. You know, she was buying Blondie records and I was buying Elvis Costello records, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hear that straight away in both those bands. Looking at things in a, in a very subjective way now and that we're older, I certainly have reservations about the era, maybe some of the unhealthier topics that I guess that were quite common. One of the things I think mm. I, that bugs me the most about that period of lad culture, uh, Loaded Magazine, you know, there was a real misogynistic, unhealthy way that some people were behaving and sort of some of the publications were behaving. I just want to get your take on it, really. Yeah, certainly. And, and, and obviously, um, you know, My Life Story is an 11 piece band. Uh, you know, we were all, we were all nearly 50 50, as gender is concerned, because uh, of, uh, of, the, of the string of our string players and our brass players who are, who are nearly all women. So it was probably the, one of the, 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 the happiest accidents. You know, it, it did cross my mind, you know, at the time. Or, you know, that sort of attitude. It was, yeah, it was women, you know, well, can you compete with the men type thing, wasn't it? Yeah, in terms yeah, yeah. Of, at the time, you know, I can only speak for my life story. At the time, you know, it, it, it started to become pretty evident that having women in a band 
um, you know, wearing Versace dresses, playing violins was was gonna was gonna attract major label interest, and that's exactly what it did. I don't think that any any of the girls in my life story ever felt like uh, they weren't in in control in any kind of way. Mm. I, I, I can only talk for, like I said, for for for, for my band, but um, you know. And, and I think um, I think I think you make a good point there, actually, and it's important to separate the musicians from the media, and and, and actually that was perpetuated by by publishers and not by the bands themselves who were who were watching. Each yeah, other's and also I think I think he, we've got to give some credit to record companies here as well because you know they're you know not since punk um, had we had so many mu- women in in a, in rock music. You know there there were there were women in so many bands, and if they weren't in bands, then there were there were, women were very heavily involved in the movement and that is something that we shouldn't forget you know um and and record labels were you know snapping up bands with women in so you know which might have been different uh some you know uh 20 30 years previous so um but i i I mean all that nuts and zoo and and all that stuff that, that that came along that that always feels a little bit later. It's like to me, that's like that Britpop part two almost. A little it bit, is, yeah, it? yeah. You, it came at the tail end, and I think um, most sort of Britpop bands were either you know shedding those the skin of that that era and, and sort of growing and you know releasing their second third albums and doing something maybe a little bit different or maturing with the sounds and maybe we were moving in a different direction potentially there. And and I don't think it was a bubble that burst. It was more like a, as with anything, it, it was so quick to move on. It feels like to me it was a very short period of time. When you look back at it, would you say that it was healthy for the music industry as a whole? What, just Britpop as a, as a yeah. thing? Uh, helpful to the music industry? I mean, that's a stupid question, because yes, of course it was, because we sold a lot of records I mean, and Britpop was put on the, on the map, but like any music from any, any sort of decade uh, or any sort of genre, the fact that we're still having extremely successful club nights, um, or indie, indie disco and Britpop club nights, and it's still an, a, such a, a great nostalgic time for music in itself. We, we have to kind of look back at it in a very in a, in a retrospective way and just say yeah it was it had its ups and its downs <laughs> i mean i think again you know uh, obviously you know as you said earlier i was in the sort of thick of it so obviously my viewpoint is in and looking out and your yeah. viewpoint is out and looking in and, and so we've got slightly different um views on it um i think that the the, the issue that i think the one thing that surprised me about Britpop per se was was the and the thing that I wasn't prepared for was the was the sort of cut and thrust and the and the the sort of the the uh, there's a kind of a bullying culture within Britpop in within the sort of bands and there was a, obviously a lot of um, competition but there was a lot of backbiting which I you know I kind of in, in, ended up getting involved in a bit and it's that was the one thing that completely took me utterly by surprise was the amount of yeah the sort of competitive edge because i i suppose i'd always i don't know when i when i was watching top of the pops and you'd see all these glam rock bands you could sort of imagine them all hanging out with each other you know in the pub afterwards and Mm. obviously in the 80s which is the decade that you know i started buying records in you know you heard of a rivalry between bands like spandau ballet and duran duran but they were the greatest of friends you know yeah yeah and it was always done as in as, as a as a sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of rivalry in Britpop it was it was a spiteful hateful rivalry perpetuated by a number of people within the scene did the enemy help in terms of stirring the pot because they seem to instigate 
or t- they were turncoats on a lot of bands. It was they were horrible yeah. to see. Yeah, I mean the yeah, I mean, the, but they yeah, <laughs> lots of very strange things go on. I mean, we accepted a tour. We used to get lots of great reviews in both the Melody Maker and the Enemy, um, and then we accepted a tour the through the Melody Maker sponsored tour. And as soon as we went on the Melody Maker tour, the enemy started slagging us off. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You can't win, really. No, no. Um, but the, yeah, I think the the sort of rivalry, I think, was was something that I that was the thing that I found the most distasteful. Um, and in some ways, if the Britpop bands had collaborated with each other more, and actually, it was a very disparate scene. Really, we all had the same ideas. Mm. Um, but we never really helped each other. And I think that if, you know, the, the power, the collective power of all, uh, as opposed to a lot of infighting, and if you think about the amount of Britpop bands that kind of had lineup changes or, you know, split up quite early, you know, and you maybe compare that with other, possibly other decades. I don't, I've never seen a study on it, but I, I, you yeah. know, I reckon it was, a, it was a fairly sort of explosive scene. Mm. Um, you know, that may be something to do with the drugs. I mean, that's another thing that, you know, one minute I didn't really know anything about drugs and then suddenly drugs were everywhere. I mean, that was, that yeah. was quite an astonishing thing to see as a 20 year old man, just, just how quickly that, that came into onto the scene and obviously that didn't help it certainly didn't help with songwriting you know the songwriting yeah, yeah, started yeah. to change and get much more self-indulgent but i think the celebration is of Britpop is the is is probably the individuality of all the bands mm. so you know when you look back on it and i obviously i've done a a number of these uh, nostalgia tours which i i very much enjoy doing i you know i take them for what they are just like the audience i love doing them i love meeting everybody and meeting some of the bands that I didn't really know back in that day and now become very good friends with many, many people from that era. I'm more friends with people from the 90s now than I was in the 90s. Um, (laughs) I think it's the disparate nature of it, in in a way, it's strength. Um, That, you know, you have these sort of, the the northern part of Britpop and then there's a more glamorous southern part of Britpop and it, and it, but but the one thing that ties it all together is is fantastic songwriting. You know, you, you could name me, every band of the, that era and they all had one or two absolutely you know stonewall brilliant songs yeah and you can't yeah. really say that for a lot of movements you know i think the 80s is patchy when it comes down to songwriting and lyrics sometimes production and and innovation you you can't beat it you know the yeah. innovation came out of the 80s but but the but the 90s was 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 there's a lot of great song craft there and, that, and that's the one thing that i'm very proud of is that you know to 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 be a songwriter as part um, and part of that movement um, is something that um, you know I'm, I'm really pleased about. And for me, songwriting is is absolutely the cornerstone of all music. You're still very much releasing music and, and uh, promoting yourself in that in that uh, respect. Yeah, and I, and I think for me, you know, it's the songwriting that leads it. So you yeah, know, if I don't have an album of stuff that that is that I don't feel is is worthy, you know, of someone's attention, then I don't really see the point of. Maybe I think a bit like my parents, who are painters and artists. Painting isn't finished. Why hang it up in a gallery? You know. What's your outlook now? Is it just to, as you say, just to continue? You're not you're not done. You're not you're just not physically done with with the yeah. With your I voice. Did, no, yeah, I've really found my, I sort of found my calling again, really. Um, I think, I think, you know, as a, as a songwriter, I'm, I'm now in a position with, with sort of friends and loved ones around me who I have people that are now so incredibly supportive that, that want me to write more. And, I, um, 
when in my in my forties, unfortunately, I wasn't really in a place um, uh, and in an environment that that allowed me to to really make music. Uh, and and now I've got that. And so you know, you 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 need people to write songs for, if you see what I mean. Mm. You need a brief. Yeah. So I have a you know a, a wonderful partner and and uh you know and she encourages me and um you know my i have a daughter who who's really into songwriting and uh so i'm i'm in a position now where i have support we're, we all we're all flowers we all need to we all need water yeah, um, yeah. So, so yeah so i'm i'm just i'm absolutely enjoying my writing um and and i and i thoroughly enjoy writing uh commercially as well and, and obviously a lot of the commercial music i write with my partner my writing partner nick evans we uh it, it doesn't have lyrics it's uh it's soundtrack based music so um so I, I really felt like i wanted to get back uh get the lyric book out again and start uh trying to uh play around with the english language once more the favorite my life stories tune to to perform what would it be because i mean i know my my favorites would be uh 12 reasons why i love you which the mute i was just watching the, the video again yesterday because it, it's just a, such a bombastic track it's such a good fun video and it just it kind of encapsulates everything yeah. it's so it's so it's so kitsch and brilliant tongue in cheek yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was it was it was like you, it was such a sense of knowing about that whole that whole thing and, and uh, country house by blur seems forced to me and that was a little bit later that had a similar feel to it in terms of props and you know that merry-go-round type thing but it felt very forced and labored whereas you you looked like you turned up and you felt literally what can we do to represent every lyric and um it was very spur of the moment i'm guessing but it looks it's such a laugh but this is one of the best tunes i think of that whole era and thanks very much really for you know giving us and giving me some great tunes to dance to back in that era and to jig about to in the kitchen now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're more than welcome. Yeah, I mean, I think the 12 reasons why, yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's a, any any song that's, you know, brash and, and sort of vivacious and short is always a good song to perform. Well, it's put three minutes over. long. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's like running the 100 metres, you know, yeah, you might yeah. just run as fast as you can and see yeah. what happens. You know. Well, it, it's the golden ticket in it, that three minute pop song. What is it about three minutes, isn't it? I mean, I, I've, I've often sat there and thought, you know, why three? I was told once um, when, uh, of course, Strumpet was, was is, is, I think is exactly three minutes. I think, I think they are exactly three yes, minutes long. Yeah. Like yeah. Well, I was looking um, at it today because it was really interesting because I was thinking, this can't be this consistent. And it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think they are exactly three. If not, yeah, they'll yeah. be one or two seconds over. And I, and I remember, and they, 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 and they both, um, they both, they were both played, you know, very extensively on, on radio, radio one in particular. And, uh, and uh, I remember asking a plugger, a radio plugger, I said, what do you know? Why, why have both of these, why do you think these two have you know, done so well on the playlist? Whereas some of our other songs like Sparkle, for example, was not mm. playlisted. Why is Sparkle not? Yeah, which is three and a half minutes. Why is you know surely it's not down to the minutes? Is it? <laughs> um, why is that? Why why are these two are not that one? And the plugger said a really interesting thing, which I don't know if it's true or not. But um, apparently DJs they kind of like they often get a, a you know the producer says you know three minutes to the news, you know and stuff like that. And yeah, uh, we yeah. did get played a lot just before the news. And I don't know whether that's uh, perfect. Who's winding up, but uh, I, I, I love it as an anecdote anyway. Yeah, no, mean, no, it works. But, but the, also a, a, a sudden end rather than a fade, you know. So, yeah, what yeah. Was, I would sort of, you know, it basically ended like the news, you know. <laughs> 
know, I'm thinking of suing <laughs> the news, wrote, whoever wrote the news anyway. Jake, it's been fantastic going down memory lane. Um, uh, thank you so much again for coming on and, and talking about my life story and, and Britpop and, and the good and bad times and what it meant to everybody that was in it. And it's great to hear your perspective from, like I say, you're the inside looking out. Where can we find you online? Have you got like Twitter handles or anywhere that we can see you and hear your stuff? Uh, yeah, probably just best or just head to the to the website, which is uh, mylifestory.band. Mm-hmm. And then you've got all the handles there. But uh, usually it's mylifestoryuk um, is our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. Thanks again to Jake. He was an absolute gent and it was really interesting to talk to him about behind the scenes Britpop and 90s goings on. So if you're enjoying the podcast, and I really hope you are, please make sure you you leave a review and give us a five star rating if you feel like it and follow us on social media and get involved in all the 90s indie music and Britpop chat. Search for Back to Britpop. It's as easy as that. And give us a follow or a like or whatever. More episodes coming up, so stay tuned.